Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Chances for a defense supplemental bill for aid to Ukraine and more money for the Pentagon in the wake of the debt deal may be in trouble. The House Freedom Caucus is in revolt, shutting down the House floor to protest uh, the House Speaker's negotiation of that debt deal, just as Kevin McCarthy vows to investigate the Biden administration and federal law enforcement in the wake of Uh, Donald Trump's expected indictment uh, for his handling of top secret documents. As Ukraine launched its uh, long-awaited offensive, Russia appears to have destroyed a key dam across the Dnipro River, wreaking havoc on towns on both sides of the border. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that China uh, may be building a spy base in Cuba, reporting the administration says is wrong. France appears to be blocking an effort to open a NATO office in Japan and lots of other headlines across the Asia Pacific as well uh, as in the Middle East. Joining us uh, to review the week in Washington and around the world are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody uh, following the transatlantic relationship. And also uh, is going to give us an update on uh, what have been an extraordinary series of uh, conversations at CNAS's uh, big annual uh, conference and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, thanks uh, and, and welcome. Um, Michael, uh, start us off. Um, last week, uh, you were first uh, in saying uh, that you didn't think that a supplemental was going to be uh, something that was going to be easily accomplished. And then also, you know, we've been discussing for many weeks that actually there's likely to be a revolt, uh, even if Speaker McCarthy and the president uh, and Hakeem Jeffries and the entire Republican uh, leadership did a terrific job in negotiating this debt deal, a, a deal where everybody <laughs> can claim success on one point or another could actually ba- uh, backfire on the speaker because, uh, you know, it only takes one vote uh, for a motion to vacate. Walk us through where we stand and what the outlook for a supplemental is, because from your standpoint, it's a calendar issue as much as anything else. Right. Yeah, I mean, calendar is one of the issues. I mean, I think we thought after uh, last week's debt deal getting passed, we could get on with the basic functioning of government. And there's a lot to do uh, in the limited calendar we have, uh, not just NDAA, uh, but all the appropriations bills to fund the government, FAA reauthorization, uh, the Farm Bill, Coast Guard reauthorization, and of course, you know, uh, a supplemental uh, for Ukraine, among other things. But not so fast, right? So remember, when the deal passed last week, uh, the senators asked for commitment from their leadership that there would be a supplemental spending bill uh, for Ukraine that would also include extra funds for the Pentagon, and it left the door open for some non-defense domestic discretionary as well. However, on Monday, uh, McCarthy, uh, who's the speaker, came out saying, why do you move a supplemental when you just you know, passed an agreement? And he stressed that the debt deal uh, increased defense spending and that any further increases would have to go through the formal appropriations process. And then he started to criticize the Department of Defense, saying it needs reform. And he argued that the agency needs to be more efficient in spending. And uh, you know, with a budget that big, there's lots of places that we can find savings. Uh, the following day, uh, Leader uh, McConnell in the Senate dug in 
to insist that more needs to be done to support our, our defense and start citing the threats that are growing from China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, terrorist uh, threats in the Middle East. Uh, and then Senator Lindsey Graham, who said last week that the party of Reagan is dying, uh, also said that the speaker will never convince me that a 2% below actual inflation is fully funding the Defense Department. And this cannot be the position of the Republican Party. Um, Senator Collins, who was the ranking uh, senator on the Appropriations Committee in the Senate, also came out in favor of uh, increased spending for defense in Ukraine. But more importantly, uh, Senator Reid, uh, who is the chairman of the ha- Senate Armed Services Committee and is a Democrat, uh, said that, look, Ukraine is going to need more resources. And if we lose in Ukraine, we're going to lose everywhere. However, you know, on Wednesday, McCarthy came out even stronger, uh, saying that he opposes uh, a supplemental uh, spending bill. Uh, and remember, you know, we've been talking about this for months, that I've been saying that the administration is misreading the calendar and misreading the politics and that they should have sent over the Ukraine supplemental earlier, especially when the Republicans were asking for it. I mean, Ken Calvert, the chairman of the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee in the House, has been asking for the supplemental, I think, as far back as February. And now uh, we seem to be in serious trouble because McCarthy said again uh, this week, working a supplemental right now is blowing up the agreement. Uh, and that would have to be taken out of the defense portion of the bill. And we would have to have a detailed justification as to why this money is needed and how the previously appropriated money has been spent, which is really kind of a 180 on the position that he's taken earlier on Ukraine. And also, you would think that taking a hard line against trying to get around this deal and against any additional spending would appease the Freedom Caucus and conservatives in this conference. But that is not the case. Uh, as you mentioned during the introduction, uh, on Tuesday, uh, 11 uh, conservatives um, decided to uh, shut down uh, Congress. But you know, they, they started complaining. They said, look, um, you know, McCarthy promised when he ran for speaker that he would use the FY22 numbers as his baseline. And he went back on that promise. Uh, and, and, and the numbers are just below the 23 uh, numbers. And McCarthy denied making that promise. He said that those were really aspirational. So, um, you know, it, there's an unwritten rule that you never vote against the rule that allows bills to come up for consideration. Uh, and with the exception that uh, last week's debt deal, several Republicans voted against the rule and Democrats gave Republicans votes for that rule. But they're not going to give them votes for other rules, especially legislation that they're not interested in uh, and messaging bills like the bill last week that would regulate natural gas burning stoves. Uh, and 11 uh, conservatives voted against the rule. So it completely shut down uh, the floor. And actually, uh, Politico had a very funny headline saying Republicans can't pass gas. Uh, so uh, it, and not only was the floor shut down on Tuesday, it shut down all day Wednesday. And uh, finally, at 6 o'clock at night, uh, McCarthy decided to send all their members home. Uh, and there's no resolution in sight right now. Um, uh, so Congress will come back again on Monday. And it's you know, it's unclear what the um, Freedom Caucus is going to extract to allow the, the floor to function again, but they are saying that they're very unhappy with the spending levels. And McCarthy did indicate the other day that he would be willing to mark up House uh, appropriations bills to a lower number uh, than the FY, uh, 20, FY23 numbers, and maybe even to go as low as the 22 numbers. And, you know, if he does that, uh, you know, that's checkmate uh, for the House Freedom Caucus. Because uh, they're, they're showing um, this week that they're much smarter than we think they are. I mean, even Scott Perry, who is the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, said, when we pass things around here that are messaging bills and don't do anything, is it really a loss that we aren't passing anything? Right. So because he knows the 
bills like that natural gas burning stove bill uh, aren't going to make it anywhere. They're not going to make it through the Senate. They're not going to get signed into law. But if they can get this uh, commitment from McCarthy to mark up bills at the FY22 levels, then they are guaranteeing that those appropriations bills will never get off the floor, which means they can't get in the conference and they will never pass. And we'll end up with CRs for the next year or two with a 1% cut, which is now in the statute that was passed to raise the debt ceiling. So they would get uh, spending levels below 23 if they can muck up the works. And we're on the cusp of that happening. So eight, does McCarthy survive? And what's the way out of this then? What's the advice you would give them? Um, well, the advice I would give them is to form a coalition government with the Democrats and move forward and make the make government work. Uh, and, and I hear Republicans talking about that. Uh, I don't think we're, we're there yet. Uh, I think that next week things are going to get far worse before they get better. I think we should expect a lot of more a lot more shenanigans uh, from the House Freedom Caucus next week to muck up the works on the floor. And I think if McCarthy does agree to mark up to lower numbers, and I wouldn't be surprised if he did, they'll just ask for something else a week later or a week after that. These guys are never going to be satisfied. They're never going to be happy. They want chaos. They don't want the government to function. They, they thrive on government shutdowns, and they want to go home and show people that they're making sure that uh, the government is spending less. Uh, th- these are people that campaign against Washington on a regular basis. So uh, th- th- this is what they thrive on. During the speaker vote, they were saying the taxpayers were winning because they treated the speaker vote as a government shutdown because it was taking so much time away from the general workings of government. Um, let me uh, take you to the Republican presidential field and how the indictment of former President Trump plays into this. Um, uh, Republican candidates either gave some support to the president, have stayed silent, only Asa Hutchinson uh, has uh, become uh, uh, you know, prominent in his complaints. 75% of Republicans, according to a recent Gallup poll, uh, believe the election was, you know, the last election was stolen. Um, and the House Speaker has made clear, you know, that Donald Trump is an innocent civilian, that federal law enforcement agencies have run amok. I think it's interesting you know, this is the party of law and order now turning on, uh, you know, with with a constituency, by the way, that I would argue is 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 likely significantly Republican. And now the party is sort of turning uh, on on what has been an important constituency, um, you know, for basically doing their job, because, you know, there are news reports today as we record this, that the former president was was actually, you know, saying that he didn't declassify this information. Right. I mean, CNN, I think, has a has a, a transcript of, of some of the president's uh, remarks. How, how does this whole Trump dynamic affect the race? And in turn, the party has had numerous, you know, I, I actually think it is Trump's party and not really the Republican party anymore because they can't keep getting away from Trump and every opportunity they have to break with Trump, they don't, they move closer to Trump. So how does this dynamic play itself out, uh, uh, Michael, um, and, and actually, affect kind of politics more broadly about what the Hill does, right? Because building a coalition is going to be very hard when Republicans are not just investigating the president, but also investigating the FBI and the Justice Department, you know, because they have the temerity to try to enforce the law against a former president who may be breaking the law. Right. Look, uh, the outlook here is a little hazy. I think, you know, let's take a step back. I think the Republican field really kind of took shape this week. It looks like there's going to be 12 uh, folks in this race. So I think four uh, are pretty, you know, irrelevant uh, folks like, you know, Larry Elder, you know, Perry Johnson, you know, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy and others. But um, the fact that, you know, you have Pence, uh, now you have the, you know, Republican governor of North Dakota, which was a surprise getting in the race. But Chris Christie's entry, I think, is significant. 
uh, because, you know, you mentioned Asa Hutchinson before. I think Asa Hutchinson and Chris Christie are the only two that seem willing to take on Trump uh, and, and to challenge Trump. Uh, you know, right when Christie announced, you know, he, you know, called Trump a lonely, self-consumed, self-serving mirror hog and, uh, you know, uh, said when a spoiled baby misbehaves, you send him to their room, not to the White House. And at his advanced age, it's time to give up hope that Trump will ever grow up and we need a leader, not a child. And that, you know, was, were bold statements that none of the other candidates outside of Asia Hutchinson are willing to make. And as you mentioned, too, I mean, today, uh, you know, at the response to the indictment is Republicans defending him. Um, and in talking about investigations into Justice Department, including um, Senator Tim Scott, you know, who's a candidate for president, came out talking about the weaponization of government and uh, the Justice Department. Uh, you know, how is he challenging Trump if he's at the same time backing up Trump and he just reinforces the notion that he's really running for Trump's uh, vice presidency? So I think that, you know, Christie is one to keep an eye on who will make this case and not only, you know, remind voters about, uh, you know, this the, the indictment, I think, and I think we have others that will follow, but, you know, the fact that Trump has called January 6th a, a beautiful day, uh, that, uh, you know, he's dined at home with white supremacists, he's called for the termination of the Constitution, he embraces uh, QAnon, uh, he describes Vladimir Putin, uh, Putin as a genius, he's leveled racist attacks against Mitch McConnell's wife, He's uh, implied he supports the dissolution of NATO. He congratulated Kim Jong-un last week for being added to the WHO uh, board. Um, you know, because Chris Christie will have a soapbox on networks like Newsmax and, and Fox. And I think can, uh, he's our really only hope to make a dent in, in, in Trump's support. Uh, in, indeed. Dove, uh, let me just bring you uh, in very quickly and, and get your sense on this, right? Because I think you've been a Republican then longer than anybody else on this call uh, has has been and fall into the category of classical uh, principled conservative. What's what's your sense on, on where all of this is going and what might be a solution to the debacle we have, uh, whether it's with uh, former President Trump or uh, whether uh, it's with figuring out how to get a supplemental and, and more money? Yeah, I have a piece in the Hill about that that's, that just appeared. Uh, McCarthy's between a rock and a hard place in the sense that if he were to do what uh, Michael suggested and work with the Democrats, he could wind up like that British prime minister, uh, Ramsey McDonald, who had to rely on who was labor and had led labor for decades and had to rely on conservative votes and finally had to leave the party. Uh, I don't think that's a good solution for Mr. McCarthy. Um, one way out, at least on defense, which was suggested to me by a very senior uh, Republican House appropriator, uh, was China, because there is agreement across the board with the really with a very small exception of the right and the left uh, extremists that uh, we need to spend more needed more money to defend against China. Now, if that becomes the vehicle for uh, adding money to defense, you may it may be easier for McCarthy to work with Democrats. He could still pull as many Republicans as he pulls Democrats to support this. And then once if that gets approved, and remember, the Biden administration's not said a word about adding money to defense because that's their budget right now. They're in the deal. Uh, but if that were approved, then uh, you could move money. Uh, by going to Congress for a reprogramming to support funding for Ukraine. And since you'd have to go to the two armed services and defense uh, and the two defense appropriations subcommittees for that, uh, 
you'll get the approval. And so that might be a way out of this dilemma. It's not going to solve all of McCarthy's problems. He's going to further infuriate the right. But it would allow him, I think, to deliver on defense, because at the end of the day, if they don't spend more money on defense, while the Chinese are going full bore in their direction, we're going to have a very, very serious national security problem, not in 10 years, but in the next couple. And, and what about the, the Trump uh, matter and how it affects the race, right? I mean, at each opportunity, the party has an ability or an opportunity to break with the there, former president I, my guess and it chooses is, my, not to each time. Look, we're, we're speculating here. And I, my guess, and it's only a speculative guess, is that if something happens to Trump in terms either of the his popularity diminishing or uh, he gets caught up in having to fight against uh, what's clearly going to be a prosecution, uh, that might give the uh, the Hill people and senior Republicans generally a vehicle for distancing themselves, because then it's going to look like that they may be betting on the wrong horse and politicians hate to do that. Uh, it will uh, certainly be interesting. We'll have many, many more opportunities to discuss uh, uh, the race uh, and what's next. And uh, just for anybody who might have missed it, right, the former president said he's uh, about to be indicted, uh, jumped the shark on it because uh, the, the government has not said anything yet uh, one way or another. Jim, uh, you're going to be with us for another couple of minutes, and I've got three questions I've got to ask you. So it's a little bit of a lightning round. And thanks very much for making time for us this morning. Uh, terrific conference on, on your guys' part. You moderated a discussion with Jens Stoltenberg and, and Julie uh, Smith as well. And I think that that's kind of maybe a good place uh, to start. Um, Ukraine has launched its uh, offensive. Some reports say Ukraine is making gains. Uh, and and even uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, the Wagner Group boss, has said the Ukrainians have made gains. Others are saying that the Ukrainians faced uh, stiff fighting and they've been rebuffed and, and lost some uh, equip, uh, equipment. Uh, Washington is saying that Russia was responsible for blowing up the Nova uh, Kakovka uh, Dam across the Dnipro River. That's you know, flooded hundreds of thousands from their homes. I mean, it's just been uh, echo-side in, in many cases, but also indicates the lengths to which, um, you know, participants in a war will go, whether it's destroying uh, the Nord Stream pipeline or blowing up a dam and even flooding out their own residents and hurting their own troops. Where are we at this point in the war? Uh, and what's your sense on what's to come next from talking to some of America's and the Alliance's senior most leaders? Well, I, I think, you know, offensives don't start off uh, the way they do in Hollywood, you know, where you have lines of horsemen, you know, a cavalry charging forward. And it's something that's obvious. Uh, I think I think this offensive has they've been prepping the battlefield, if you will, for a, a while now, uh, including Bakhmut, you know, uh, using tactical moves that chew up uh, Russian forces uh, and, and also hitting them psychologically, the drone attacks and. And, and that type of thing. So, uh, so I think things are building up now. They're, these are probes going out. This is reconnaissance in force, as, as they say. They're trying to find weak points. I understand that they've been using the Leopard 2s and the Bradleys, which certainly is an example of what you would see as an offensive begins. So I think they're still really in that initial phase of probing and trying to figure out uh, uh, really where some of the soft spots are for them to try to bust through. So there's more to come. Uh, and um, and we're going to have to sit tight and and watch. I know the U.S. is providing a lot of a lot of intel. 
uh, obviously, um, and that's going to be helpful as they try to determine where they're going to make a big push that will look obvious, that will look like, oh, okay, that looks like an offensive. Uh, so I think it's for that kind of uh, visual, we're going to have to wait a bit uh, and see and watch how they move forward and see how the Russians respond. Critical in all of this is what do the Russians do? Uh, how, that, you know, in some places they're very well dug in and other places um, probably not so much. And so we're going to have to see uh, how the Russians themselves react. But for sure, all eyes are on this. Uh, and uh, we have to tamp down expectations uh, of what it looks like uh, and, when it, and when it's going to begin in earnest. And I think we're, 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 we're heading in that direction, but we're just not in a place where people will recognize that and point a finger and say, that's what an offensive looks like. What did uh, what did Ambassador Smith and the Secretary General have to say that you or, you know or or just summarize even from the span of the conference, which was just a terrific cast of characters, uh, what you thought were sort of some of the key takeaways? And I've got two other quick follow up questions before we lose you. Well, for me, a, a key takeaway from our conversation with the Secretary General and with Ambassador Smith was that uh, this 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 plan, and we've talked about this on this show before, but this plan that the NATO military authorities are putting together. Uh, in terms of really beefing up the frontier with Russia, in terms of um, forces, in terms of, of, of sectorial assignments, in terms of things we haven't seen since the Cold War, that that really is quite far along. And it sounds like it will be announced at Vilnius. Uh, and it's going to be something that uh, we'll, we'll need to pay attention to. Uh, and we raised this with uh, the Secretary General and with Julie uh, a bit, which was, uh, will allies actually come forward with the funding and with the forces to do everything that, this, uh, that the NATO military authorities have laid out in their plan? You know, a plan is great, and Sakir and the, the staff there, Mons, uh, are very good at that. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and I think a lot of what they're wanting uh, the allies to do in terms of moving forces forward is important to do. But but at the end of the day, the nations have to do the right thing. They've got to put money towards uh, defense. They, they, they've got to reach at least that 2%, and not enough have. Um, and if so if this plan is going to be successful, um, and it's got to be pretty quick, I, I would say. I, I don't think we've got a lot of time um, to, to, let this, to let this move at the pace of budgets. Uh, you know, we, we need to watch and make sure that we can hold the allies' feet to the fire to do what they're going to commit to do at Vilnius in terms of providing those forces. I will admit to you, I'm a little skeptical. I've been a NATO defense planner. I know how this works, but, but they cannot fail. The point being that if we're going to deter future Russian aggression, then the plans that the allies uh, are going to sign up to have got to be credible. Uh, Putin needs to see allies putting forward actual military capability, tanks, personnel, readiness, things that cost money. Putin needs to see the allies doing that and not just agreeing to something that they actually aren't going to do in the years to come. So uh, I'm concerned about that. Let's watch Vilnius. Let's see what the plan says. And then uh, let's watch over the next year as nations put money towards this. If they don't, then we've got a big problem in the alliance. Um, let me uh, ask you, uh, I've got uh, two more questions. And, and one of them is, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were discussing whether the U.S. government was going to have reservations about American equipment being used uh, to attack Russia uh, itself, right? There have been strictures on that. Uh, but in the wake of that, quote, partisan attack, 
uh, by Russian partisans uh, equipped by Ukraine that attacked into Russia. Um, we've even had now the White House indicating, well, this is what happens when there's a war um, and that you know, Ukrainian attacks on Russia are understandable in the prosecution of, of war, right? I mean, at the highest levels, we've heard that from John Kirby now. Are we entering a different phase in the conflict from your standpoint and in terms of the White House's risk tolerance that is, well, is changing as they recognize like, no, actually, Ukraine has to win and Russia has to lose, which is what they've been saying from the beginning, even though that that didn't seem to be readily apparent for a while. Well, I think this is a, a, a different phase in terms of, of Ukraine tactics. I think Ukraine feels they're in a place now where they can actually try to bring the war to Russia, at least to the Russian people. So they, they, they have a feeling that the war is actually on their front doorstep. It's not, you know, hundreds of miles away. So this is a, we are in a different phase in terms of how Ukraine is approaching bringing the war to the Russians. And again, it's very much like uh, the attacks, uh, Doolittle attacks over Tokyo in World War II, of uh, the U.S. saying uh, early in this war, when we were on our back heel, uh, we, were, we wanted to bring the war to the Japanese as well and Tokyo to say, you're vulnerable. Uh, and so it's a very similar thing, but you got to have a degree of confidence to embark on that. And I think uh, Ukraine has reached that. In terms of the United States in this, uh, our concern has been more the use of U.S. equipment to hit strategic targets in Russia. The, 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 uh, the hand-wringing at the, on the NSC staff and at the White House is more of escalation as uh, seen by Putin uh, as being driven by the United States and US equipment. So I think in terms of what Ukraine is doing, um, you know, we're, we're saying, well, look, this is war. And, you know, as you pointed out, this is war, this is what happens. And, and trying to distance ourselves a little bit from what Ukraine is doing by saying they can do what they want to do here you know, uh, but but U.S. equipment and U.S. aid is not involved in this. So don't point the finger at us, Putin. So I think there right. is concern in the White House about escalation here. Um, but uh, they're handling it by trying to say, look, it's not us. <laughs> so, you know. And a quick word from our sponsors, Leonardo, DRS, and HII sponsor our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Let me, uh, let me just ask you one uh, bridge question. And Patrick's been very uh, patient, and I want to get Dove's sense on this uh, in a little bit uh, as well. Um, in the Asia Pacific, France has done a terrific job over the last decade of sort of highlighting that it is really the only European, Asia, uh, or Pacific power. It has millions of citizens in the region. French Polynesia is obviously very important. France has been doing a terrific job with freedom of navigation operations, forward deployments of, and a lot of, uh, you know, very, um, not necessarily large, but very thoughtful air, land, sea exercises that it's been executing in the region. Now we have this, uh, you know, we had President Macron's comments uh, about uh, China when he returned from Beijing that were problematic for, for Washington. Uh, sort of a little bit of a hiccup in terms of, wait a minute, we were expecting this to be going in a way where the French were going to be more of a partici Pacific participant, throwing a little bit of water on that. Now a news story that um, uh, President Macron has vetoed the idea of a NATO office in Japan. You know, the argument being, hey, that would be an inflammatory move. It would inflame relations with China, um, sort of along with his thing of, I don't want to be caught in the middle of it. NATO's for Europe. It's not uh, really for Asia. I would point out the only time Article 5 was invoked was, this, was after the United States was attacked and NATO went to Afghanistan. 
And NATO may actually have no choice, as some planners know, that if there's a war in the Indo-Pacific, NATO nations will get pulled into this, whether they like it or not. So actually, a planning office might make sense, and Japan's probably the best place for that. That does, you know, if this news story is true, uh, which there is an expectation that it is, what does that mean? And does it at all undermine um, sort of France's case in the United States that, hey, look, we're in it. And, and indeed, and, and Patrick, want to get your sense on this. Does it undermine France's efforts in the Indo-Pacific to be sort of regarded as um, a kind of a Pacific power? Go ahead, Jim. And, and then Patrick, your sense. Well, my experience has been the France likes to have it both ways. Um, they like to have both dessert and cheese, as the as the French have accused me of, of a couple of times of wanting it, wanting to have both. Uh, well, and so anybody who knows France knows if you're going to have dessert, you're going to have cheese. But anyway, yeah, I get you. Well, ex- exactly. <laughs> and so I, I, you know, I there's a couple of couple things. One is this liaison office in Tokyo. NATO has had liaison offices in other countries before, uh, including in Ukraine. Uh, this is in Georgia and, and so other places. This is not in terms of a NATO thing. This is not something new. This is not something built just because of China, not built just because of Japan, something that's that's brand new. It's a it's a liaison office. And they're usually sparsely manned by uh, NATO uh, international staff people. And and there is a political liaison. It's an information liaison. It doesn't do planning. It doesn't do operations. It is, it's, it's there as a symbol. Uh, and it does have a practical reason to be there as being, uh, you know, the NATO whisperer, if you will, in that capital city. So, uh, so and that's what this is. And, uh, and so people making, a, a, making it into something that is not, they're not helping the situation. The second thing is, um, you know, uh, uh, the French, uh, what the French are doing at NATO to block it. You know, I... You know, I, I it's 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 interesting. I I can't th- I can't believe that it's not uh, Macron trying to carry a little bit of water for the for the for for Beijing at least, and, and at least initially. You know, they're 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 blocking it now. They might climb down from their their veto in a in a couple of weeks, maybe right before Vilnius. I mean, this sounds like it's going to be a deliverable for Vilnius. This is the uh, the, the, the Japanese will be there at Vilnius. This is a great time to announce a liaison office there. The French are, are, uh, are causing issues today. But as we get closer to Vilnius, might, they might climb down. And if they do, they can turn to the Chinese and say, well, we tried. We did what we said we would do. Uh, but what we're having at the, at the end of the day to, uh, to join consensus. And, uh, and so, you know, I think, I think what they're doing is they're playing at both sides with the Chinese. Um, and that's the French have done that on, you know, on a lot of different issues. Uh, they, they play at both sides. And that's one of the reasons a lot of countries that, that, you know, don't necessarily trust them all the time because because they know that, that that it's not always consistent in terms of French policies. And this is an example of that. So I would say, uh, Vago, that let's see what happens when we get closer to Vilnius. There'll be pressure on on the uh, French to climb down from their veto and and we'll see if they finally get consensus and open up a liaison office in Tokyo, which should not be seen as a threat by anybody. Uh, in, indeed, uh, Jim. Uh, thanks. For, and just one, one last thing. I mean, and, and get um, maybe a broader sense on this on, on the dam. Um, is, is, is Russia attacking that dam need to sort of recalibrate how we think about these kind of wars? I mean, I asked Dr. Ted Harshberger, uh, who was formerly of RAND and formerly with Lockheed's Analysis Center, uh, and he's now uh, with the with CSIS, you know, said, look, I mean, we, we, 
you know, adversaries will do things that we may not expect and, in, and do things that may actually hurt themselves as well if they feel there's a broader mission uh, to accomplish, right? China may destroy the global space architecture if it feels that it has a reason to do so and will take pain in order to achieve it. Do we need to think a little bit differently about how wars unfold um, uh, in the wake of this dam destruction? No, I think, you know, remember World War I, uh, the, the, the Belgians flooded fields in Flanders, as I remember, to try to stop right. the uh, German rush to the sea in World War I. And so they, they, they did it to themselves uh, to, to slow down the Germans. Also, the famous Dam Busters raid by the RAF right. uh, in World War II, you know, uh, so they attacked a, a dam. It wasn't, of course, in the UK, but it was one, it was a tactic that was used to impact the, the Germans uh, and unfortunately impacted people around there too, I'm sure. So, so the use of blowing up a dam is something we've seen in the past. It is a feature along with all the other horrors of war. It's something that shouldn't surprise us in this particular case because we thought in October, we'd heard rumors that the Russians might do this and, and now it's happened. So this is, this is part of the horrors of war and why we have got to get the Ukraines victorious here so that we can stop this war, stop these horrors. So. So no, I think this is this is this is just a continuing drum roll of of the, the pars of that coming out of this war in, in Ukraine, uh, and we just have to buckle up because it's not over yet. There's more to come. Thanks uh, very much, uh, Jim. Much appreciated, Patrick. Thank you for being uh, so uh, very uh, patient. Um, you know, g- give us a little bit of commentary on the implications of uh, just briefly on. Uh, the the uh, French uh, NATO issue, and then want to also get your sense on the uh, uh, the uh, news story uh, that the Chinese are considering a listening post uh, in Cuba. I want to get to that in a minute. But I mean, do you, do you think that there is any broader, um, you know, whether it it hurts uh, France's sort of case that it's a Pacific power and how folks in the region might be looking at it, and particularly how the Japanese would be looking at it? Indeed. Um, I think I'd come at it from two different uh, ends of this debate. Um, The first one is sort of the limits of uh, interconnectedness. And this may be part of Macron's strategic theory, if it's it's indeed a strategic theory and not simply, as Jim suggested, a a tactic. Uh, But the fear of losing focus and becoming overextended um, is a legitimate concern. Um, Secondly, Europe along with the Quad countries of uh, India and Australia and Japan and the United States, uh, as well as the recent uh, maritime uh, Coast Guard uh, sailing through the South China Sea of the Philippines, Japan, U.S., there's a heavy offshore balancing maritime dimension to what brings this far-flung group of allies and partners together to counterbalance China. But putting a a liaison office in Tokyo, although that's relatively innocuous, and yes, Japan has several of these as well uh, in Europe, uh, and Japan, by the way, is one of these Indo-Pacific four countries that's really pulling its weight in trying to help NATO and help Ukraine. Nonetheless, um, putting a a NATO office in Tokyo would indeed cross at least a, a bright pink line of Macron's understanding with Xi Jinping. Um, And he doesn't want... He doesn't want. He wants to preserve his special relationship, what he thinks is a special relationship with Xi Jinping, in the European context, and he also doesn't want Europe to become a place where China is focusing on it as a target. And this is sort of reflected in this European Council on Foreign Relations poll that was released this week, which showed that the majority of Europeans uh, would like to remain neutral on a Taiwan scenario, 
um, which which sort of uh, corresponds to Macron's view, even though concern in France and in Germany and the UK is all uh, spiking in terms of uh, wariness about China. Uh, on the other end of the strategic spectrum, though, uh, is uh, not this overextension kind of uh, 1950s-esque pactomania. You know, you're going to try to make these connections between Europe and Asia, and you're going to overextend and create an acido, which is going to be a bridge too far because it's not going to be based on on fundamental shared interests. The other end of that perspective uh, is is that you have um, a very strong uh, case for the need for Japan to be given reciprocity from Europe to show that if if Japan and Korea and Australia are going to help NATO, then NATO has to show that it's willing on the core concerns of uh, the Asian countries that Europe is seriously going to back them up and it's going to be more than lip service. Uh, and I think that's where uh, there's a legitimate uh, grievance in Tokyo, and hopefully this will be worked out by, by the time the Vilnius summit happens. Um, I do think that there's going to be this trilateral summit in Washington with with Biden, Kishida, and Yoon, that the trilateral Japan-South Korea-U.S. relationship that's growing right after the Vilnius summit. And they're going to be expecting that if they've given more ammunition to uh, Ukraine, in the case of uh, what South Korea might do, if Japan's done more to support NATO, um, they're going to be looking for Washington to to use its muscle to make sure that uh, these Asian allies are getting some reciprocity from NATO. Um, and how do you, um, right? I mean, Washington and Antony Blinken is going to be going uh, to Beijing uh, soon, or or at least that's been uh, next reported week, yes. uh, next week uh, in order to sort of prosecute the thaw. Bill Burns was over there, the CIA director, uh, right? So it seems like we're, um, you know, for whatever reason, trying to thaw the relationship. And every time we try to thaw it a little bit, the Chinese sort of zonk us, right? There's a naval incident. There's an air incident. Now there's the news story that the Chinese are considering building a base uh, in Cuba, right? Um, you could argue, you know, the Soviets used to have a base at Lourdes. Uh, I think it closed in 2007. There's been some talk the Russians would reopen that more broadly. You could also make the argument that the Cubans could do all the intelligence on behalf of China and send that information over there as well, perhaps a Monroe Doctrine issue. Anyway, what does this really mean? How does this sort of fit in the narrative? And what is it, if anything, the United States can do about this uh, ultimately? And, and you know, Dovid, like your sense, and, and even Patrick, uh, even Michael, your sense on this, uh, because, right, it, it would seem a specific escalation from Beijing's standpoint, right? The administration is saying it's not true, but then again, you know, it's it's two very good Wall Street Journal reporters who are, you know, quoting U.S. government sources, telling them this information. Indeed, and the New York Times seems to have cooperated with the same, uh, some of the same sources or similar sources that at least, uh, this is what the New York Times says, now they've run it down with additional sources, that China is negotiating with Cuba to build a facility that could allow a permanent intelligence operating base for eavesdropping, on America's commercial military traffic. Uh, you've got Senators Mark Warner, Marco Rubio, bipartisan, saying they're deeply disturbed by this uh, potential. And while China denies this as slander, uh, I would almost take that as a cooperation that must be true. Um, I, but I, I think um, we don't know exactly what they're going to do with this facility that they're negotiating, but it seems a good bet that they will use it for eavesdropping. Um, and uh, that is a concern. Now, just stepping back to... Um, the diplomacy right now. 
the Biden administration is committed to trying to put a floor under the relationship that she and Biden talked about in Bali last November. Um, militarily, it's gone nowhere in terms of guardrails, but uh, politically, it, the thaw has started. And so it was the Burns uh, trip that unplugged it. Um, you've had mid-level uh, State Department NSC officials just in uh, Beijing. That paved the way for the Blinken visit, which, uh, assuming it's not going to be scuttled now by this... Uh, well, Dan Kittenbrink was in the region, right? Dan Kittenbrink and, and Sarah Barron, who's the who's the senior director for China and Taiwan on the NSC, were both in Beijing. They helped to... They said they had a very productive meeting, and what they meant is that they got acceptance for the Secretary of State to go, it's it's not clear still at this moment, at least, whether he will be meeting with Xi Jinping or just meeting with Wang Yi and, and the foreign minister. Um, but nonetheless, it'll be a senior meeting. And that's because the timetable is it, it requires it. Um, because if Xi Jinping is going to be coming to San Francisco for the APEC summit in a lot of in, in end of the year, um, they need to have more uh, preparation for that. And so the political side, the diplomatic side is moving ahead. But militarily, we're really stuck, as we saw at the Shangri-La Dialogue. Um, and um, in China's, you know, wolf warrior diplomacy, it's uh, near collisions in the Taiwan Strait, um, it's uh, threat of economic coercion. All of those, all those tools are continuing to be used uh, against the U.S. and U.S. allies who are backing the U.S. Um, and and here's China giving us reciprocity, saying you're going to you know, uh, listen to us in our region with your reconnaissance planes and then object to when we harass you and intercept you. Well, maybe we'll just build a, a permanent uh, SIGINT base 100 miles off of Florida. That may be exactly what's happening. China's strategy, and we'll get to this other issue about this, you know, hyper concern about the China invasion, um, because that is hyperbole. Um, it, it's not hyperbole in terms of what we need to do in terms of investments and in taking it deadly seriously. But um, I, I I can come back to this issue in just a second if we just want to stay on the on the Cuba uh, issue though first. Yeah, uh, just uh, really quickly, Dove, sort of your sense and and Michael uh, on yours, right? Because everybody is playing all pile on the administration on this as well. Just really quickly uh, with the both of you, and then I want to get a little bit more from Patrick, and then I have to go to Dove because there's a lot of Middle East news, not least of which the PDA and Live Golf getting together, and whether or not that sets the stage for rapprochement or was just an outright victory for the Saudis. But we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Dove, give us your sense. Michael, yours. Uh, and then we move on. Um, well, I'm with Patrick that it's uh, essentially an intelligence or reconnaissance uh, tit for tat. Uh, it's kind of hard for the Chinese to uh, do the kinds of things we do with our aircraft. So um, they're building a facility um, for the administration. It's a real problem. They re the, the reason they're not acknowledging this uh, and taking the exact opposite stance that, for instance, the Kennedy administration did when the Soviets moved missiles into Cuba is because they don't want to have to confront the Chinese. As Patrick said, they're reaching out in all sorts of ways. They were rebuffed uh, in Shangri-La. It was a real insult, frankly, to the Secretary of Defense. So they don't want to inflame a situation. The problem is that if indeed it'll come out uh, beyond what already has come out and, and it'll, it will come out, then, they're then the administration is going to have to face uh, a bipartisan Congress that's going to be outraged and demand action. And they don't know what to do. Uh, interesting. Michael? 
Look, I think this is just another example of our failure with our strategy in Latin America. I mean, we've seen for years uh, the Brazilians you know, may, uh, get, develop a close relationship with the Russians and buy lots of equipment from them. The Chinese are very active throughout Latin America, uh, building a space a launch facility in Argentina, very active in Nicaragua, Honduras. They got the Hondurans recently to withdraw recognition of Taiwan. Uh, and then our lack of engagement continues. Right now, we are withholding all arms sales uh, to Mexico. So what is to prevent these countries uh, from continuing to engage China, not only economically, but as we see with Cuba on the military side? What's to prevent? I mean, you, you mentioned a great example, the Monroe Doctrine. Why wouldn't the Nicaraguans, the Hondurans, and maybe even the Mexicans allow the Chinese to have military basing rights there right in our backyard um, since we continue to shun them and not engage them? And a reminder for our audience to check out our weekly podcast, Cabas Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cabas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, with me and our very own J.J. Gertler. Uh, Patrick, give us a quick uh, regional uh, roundup, uh, right? I mean, you're still joining us from Seoul before you return uh, to uh, the United States and then want to get uh, just go over uh, Middle East real quick with uh, Dove as well. Sure. Let me just start with a footnote to what Michael said. It's very important about Latin America. They, I'm in Asia, as you said, and uh, in Shanghai today, the Honduran president uh, landed for her first visit uh, to China since the recognition of, of the PRC uh, as diplomatic partner rather than Taiwan. Uh, and she's there. She was her, her her itinerary included visiting Huawei, um, visiting a BRICS bank, um, you know, in the financial capital in Shanghai to help develop a hydroelectric dam and other uh, joint projects. All kind of total slaps uh, on the face of the United States uh, in terms of everything counter to what the U.S. wants, providing an alternative universe. Anyway, back on to other things in Asia, though, um, and, and on, on Taiwan, I mean, one other issue, we go back to the intelligence sharing or SIGINT uh, interception interest of, uh, of, of what China's doing. Uh, it's been uh, revealed uh, in the press, at least, if it's not true, you know, the MQ-9s that are going to Taiwan are going to be uh, connected to the U.S. and Japan network um, and provide a common operating picture by 2025. Um, and it could be that kind of, uh, of in, sort of intrusive intelligence sharing that China may be uh, investing heavily in. China's strategy, and I'll just this segue now to this uh, article that I think was hyperbolic about uh, the Pentagon worrying about, uh, not worrying, but fretting and, and, and pulling their hair out over a possible war with China. Um, uh, I, I have yet I've yet to meet one of those people. Yeah, pulling yeah their exactly. Out. I mean, nobody's I, freaking I, out. They seem to be pretty methodical about what we need to do right. to try to get there. But anyway, our, our military professionals are not freaking out. They're very deadly serious and they should be because this is a very serious business. But um, that's not freaking out. That's just professionalism. So I want to and I would just take you and point listeners to the exchange, interesting exchange in foreign affairs that I thought was very helpful between John Culver um, formerly with the intelligence community and versus John Pomfret and, and Matt Pottinger, um, all China specialists. Um, and John Culver was responding to the original piece that they wrote about Xi Jinping says he's preparing China for war, which happens to be what he has said. Um, and John Culver said, look, but let's put this in perspective and context. Um, China and Xi still see Taiwan as a crisis uh, to be avoided, not a war to be sort of waged. 
Um, and then uh, Pomfret and Pottinger uh, have a rebuttal saying, but uh, under Xi's watch, we should not assume that we will not face war over Taiwan. I think those are all true statements. Um, and you don't have to you don't have to be hyperbolic to be very seriously concerned and make sure you're sticking to the the facts about what you're doing. China's strategy is an intent-based strategy. I don't want to, you know, we don't have time to explain that, except that it's basing, it's trying to de de deflect our intentions first and foremost. And then if it can't do that, then yes, it may resort to force. Um, so we have to put all of their gestures, all of their maneuvers, all of their rhetoric into that context. That's how they're pursuing their, their strategy. Um, and so their intent is to change our approach to Taiwan policy. And Jake Sullivan laid out an extremely clear articulation of the One China policy in his interview with Fareed Zakaria this past week. Um, he made it very clear that we're for no uh, sort of change to the status quo through force and coercion. That's the policy by any side. Um, and so I think that's uh, that's a policy that can be defended, um, but China doesn't like it, and they're going to try to change that intent anyhow. Uh, here in Korea, they rolled out the new national security strategy. It's a good document. I think uh, we agreed at a conference today. I was with Victor Cha um, and Sumi Terry, uh, who, who joined me virtually, at least, uh, at this major annual conference put on by the four large research institutes of their foreign ministry, the defense ministry, their intelligence uh, and uh, their unification ministry. Um, and we agreed that uh, the UN administration has been very successful in foreign policy overall. When you think about the Washington Declaration and the solidification of the alliance with, with the US, reaching out to Japan uh, and, and, and moving forward with uh, real-time uh, uh, missile data sharing and other cooperation, um, when you think about right. uh, what they're doing. But at the same time, Huge obstacles domestically, pressure from uh, China will grow, and meanwhile, North Korea is going to keep trying with this spy satellite. A footnote on the spy satellite is that China and South Korea are both uh, said to be extremely actively still searching for the satellite, although South Korea uh, recovered a lot of the fuselage and, and the missile from the failed satellite launch at the end of May. Uh, nobody has found the satellite yet. Um, and they would love to find that to see just how primitive or advanced it was. Um, right. Other news uh, is that we're going to have Prime Minister Modi, of course, from Washington in a couple of weeks. Uh, they're expecting a major GE jet fighter engine uh, production deal. Uh, so defense technology will be driving that U.S.-India relationship forward, which is important because overall the Quad has been lagging behind in terms of following through with its promises. And so at least bilaterally, this could really uh, uh, kickstart uh, some of the U.S.-India relationship as Modi faces an election next year. Um, and I think uh, overall, um, you know, the U.S. coming out of the Shangri-La dialogue seems to have done very well uh, with the region in terms of how it handled uh, the dialogue with China or the non-dialogue with China. Uh, and China has, I think, lost some points on this issue, but China's going to be relentless and uh, is in there fighting every day with every tool it has. Um, so uh, stay engaged. Um, Patrick, uh, thank you very much, Dove. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, we have a, a lot to cover. I want to give you uh, a couple of minutes here to kind of give us a survey uh, on uh, the Middle East and everything that's been going on. Obviously, Antony Blinken was there. We had uh, the PGA live uh, 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 agreement that caught a lot of people off guard. Some regarded as 
sort of a, a, a win for the president in eliminating an issue. On the other hand, you could also argue now the Saudis control even more major sports, whether it's Formula One, now golf, uh, uh, you know, and then we had, you know, news in Iraq, the counter ISIS coalition. It's been a, you know, the GCC meeting, it's been a very busy time. Uh, and of course, a Blinken meeting with Mohammed bin Salman as well. Kind of walk us through what are the key takeaways from uh, all of these news items from your perspective? Well, the biggest takeaway is that Saudi Arabia is not about to uh, do exactly what we want them to do. Uh, Blinken had said his priority was to get the Saudis to sign on to the Abraham Accords. That's not that didn't happen. It's not going to happen. Not until uh, King Salman, who still is king of Saudi Arabia, has made it clear that there has to be some kind of uh, settlement with the Palestinians. And that's just not on the cards with this Israeli right wing government, uh, as well as uh, a, an entrenched and, and aged uh, Palestinian leadership. So that didn't happen. Just before he got there, the Saudis reduced oil production. Again, it, it's not that big a hit for us because uh, oil right now is below $100 a barrel. So, But still, it's, it's a message. Uh, the Saudis are trying to play peacemaker. They had Zelensky there. Um, they also had the uh, Russian interior minister there, and uh, he's, he's on our blacklist. Uh, the Saudis uh, obviously are, are looking to uh, have a nuclear, uh, uh, nuclear power program, um, and they've said it's not just the United States we're looking to. They were active in the Arab League. They were the reason that Assad got back into the Arab League. They're trying to patch up their relationships with Qatar. They're trying to get out of Yemen. And uh, they're, that's part of the reason that they're patching it up with the Iranians. So they're doing a whole lot of things, some of which we're comfortable with, like getting out of Yemen, but most of which uh, cause us a little bit of aggravation. Um, they have... Uh, also, as you mentioned, uh, this PGA Live Agreement, I think it's more money driven than anything else. All you have to do is read sports pages to see that. Uh, I don't think it's high policy other than the fact that the Saudis want to be world class in just about everything. Uh, and uh, Lionel Messi, the greatest soccer player ever, uh, turned down a massive Saudi uh, offer to play in Miami, which happens to be the the largest Spanish-speaking city in the Western Hemisphere. Um, but generally speaking, the Saudis are showing that they are A, world-class, B, a world player, and C, they've got endless amounts of money that they're going to spend in a way that they never have in the past. Uh, in, uh, indeed. Uh, everybody, thanks very much. Uh, great discussion today. We have a lot of uh, stuff. Uh, really appreciate it. Thanks so very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And a very special uh, thanks to all of you for listening. And a special thanks to Bill for their generous sponsorship that makes this podcast possible. Tune in on Sunday for the Business Roundtable. We're going to take a look at the week uh, on global defense and aerospace markets. Thanks very much. Hope everybody has a great weekend and a great weekend to all of you guys as well. Thanks so much. And we'll see you again next week. Bye-bye.